Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. Peter opened up his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he has sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Are you like Peter? It's not a shock that the first verse that we start with, we read, Peter opened his mouth. Do you know anything about Peter? That's what Peter liked to do. And many moments when he was supposed to and in other moments when he probably shouldn't have. Are you that way? When you get to a big moment, what do you tend to do? Do you get quiet? Just want to sit back, observe what's happening? Or are you like, wait, this is the moment. I need to say something. You could probably tell if right now as I'm asking these questions, you want to talk to the person next to you about what you would like to do. And you might be the other way if you're going, please don't talk to me. Right? This is a hugely significant moment that we come to in Scripture. And if you remember last week, we... we even Cornelius recognizes that this is an extremely significant moment. As we were reminded, as Jim reminded us, God has orchestrated this moment. And while Luke is a historian, he is a historian that is unashamed about writing the fact that God is the one who controls history. And God is orchestrating these things. So we arrive at this point in verse 34 only because God in His sovereign hand has gotten Peter from Simon the Tanner's house to Cornelius' house, and all of that has taken place because He caused it to happen. It wasn't Peter who decided, hmm, I think I should take the Gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't Cornelius who was looking for the good news about Jesus. All of this happens because God's sovereign hand is at work. So in verse 33, Cornelius says to Peter after again describing the vision that he saw 
of an angel that appeared to him and told him to go send for Peter, he says, we are here in the presence of God. And Cornelius says that with such certainty because he, even as a Gentile, is aware that God's hand has been at work to pull all of these things together so that he's there with his family and his friends and Peter is there with six other uh, Jewish men, believers from Joppa, and they are all there together. This is a moment orchestrated by God. So Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now remember, Peter has already said something before this. He's already made this declaration that that as he comes into Cornelius' house, he sees all of these Gentiles around. He, he begins to get this understanding about the vision that God gave him about uh, unclean and clean animals coming down in a sheet out of heaven. The Pels got so excited about this that they had pigs this morning, right? A little baby pig that they were so fired up about this passage. That, that, so the, the sheet comes down three times. God says to Peter, rise, kill, eat. Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, not happening, never done it, not going to do it. And then finally the sheet goes back up into heaven. Peter's contemplating these things. What does this mean? The Holy Spirit speaks to him, says, hey, there's people at the gate, didn't even need a ring doorbell. There are people at the gate. Go with them without distinction, without hesitation, you go with them. So all of these things have happened and Peter shows up and he's beginning to understand And he says, I'm beginning to understand that I should not call common or unclean what God has called clean. That something new has happened. That the the Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled in Christ and is done away with. And Christ in His shed blood has established the new covenant. And those dietary laws and those divisions that were set up for a unique period of God's redemptive history were now being done away with. And this is how the Gospel is going to get to the Gentiles. How it's going to get to the nations. Because no longer did the Jews need to separate themselves and keep themselves distinct in things like table fellowship and stuff from the Gentiles. No. In fact, in Christ, they would be able to celebrate worship, fellowship, together in one body known as this weird thing called the church. Right? So Peter's beginning to get this understanding. And so he stands there and he opens his mouth and he begins to share. Now, here right at the outset, there's, there's this incredible beauty as Luke writes these things. Because if you go back and you read all of chapter 10, in fact, if you just read through all of the book of Acts, not right now, but if you read through Acts, what you see is you see this wonderful reality of the sovereign hand of God at work. I mean, the things that happen in the book of Acts, Luke records them as historical events, but he unashamedly makes clear that these things happen because of God's sovereign hand. This moment we read about this morning does not happen if God doesn't orchestrate it. And yet at the same time, he unashamedly points to the fact that people have to obey He unashamedly points to the fact that people have real choices that have real consequences. Now, some of you are tracking with me already and you're going, wait a second, these are really deep theological waters that we are wading into here. The sovereignty of God, His control over all things, and man's free will. 
or not free will, depending on where you land on things, right? I mean, these are deep waters. We don't, this is for old crusty men that teach in seminaries and write really big books with really hard words that only other crusty men at seminaries read, right? Not the case. Not the case at all. In fact, as you read through Luke's account in Acts and even in his gospel before, what you find is that these deep, immense, overwhelming things about God are not relegated to some far-off place of life, but this is actually where all of us, you and I, live every single day. These things about God that surpass our understanding are not things that are left to the margins, not things to be read on occasion when you're really having a hard time going to sleep at night and you're like, what do I do? Well, I'll read about a debate over Calvinism and Arminianism. That'll put me to sleep. That's not what it is. This is right down here in everyday life. This is, this is where you and I live. We live in this reality of the fact that God is absolutely fully in control. And that we've only arrived at this point in history because God is in control. When we look back over all that's happened, all that's unfolded from the creation of the world to this point, we arrived here not because of our good choices, not because man is so intelligent or women are so intelligent or all of our good efforts. We arrived here because God has an awesome redemptive plan and He will not be stopped. And at the same time, you and I have real choices that have real consequences. And somehow, all of those things work together. And yet, Luke here is okay with the immensity of God and that both of those realities are playing out in this narrative. And Peter and Cornelius are living it out right there in that moment. This morning, I just want to remind you to pay attention as God shows Himself to be far greater and more glorious than our limited understanding. Far greater and more glorious than our limited understanding. In fact, it's not just that, but Peter here, notice that it's not just th this reality of God's sovereignty and Peter making these choices, right? Peter has to open his mouth. God has set this whole moment up, and yet he won't speak on Peter's behalf. Peter still has to open his mouth and declare the message. And we know that as, as we read through the passage at the end, if the Holy Spirit is going to fall on Cornelius and his family and his friends, they had to believe. Right? So it's not that they're just passive participants. No, they're active participants, and yet God's sovereign hand is also at work at the same time. But as that's happening, here's this beautiful thing. Peter is growing in his understanding of things he already knew about God. Notice that Peter says right in the beginning, he says, truly I understand. He's not saying I didn't know this before. He's saying now I'm understanding in a deeper way. Now I'm grasping something that I already knew, but I didn't know as much as I'm knowing it right now. I don't even know if that was a sentence. What, what, he, what, he's, what he's saying is, listen, I knew God was, was impartial. I, I knew that God did not show favoritism. I knew that. That you read through the Old Testament and, and, and God testifies to this, to his people, Israel. He tells them, listen, I didn't choose Abraham because he was better than everybody else. I chose him because of my sovereign grace. I didn't choose you, Israel, because you were a great nation. You were nothing. 
You were a nobody. You didn't exist until I entered into a covenant, an unconditional covenant with Abraham. I haven't blessed you because you're better than all of the other peoples of the earth. I've blessed you as a sign of my steadfast love, of my graciousness, of my kindness, of my sovereign grace. Now, of course, Peter knew that. But as we see, as people begin to show up to be baptized by John the Baptist, one of the things that John calls them out on after calling them a brood of vipers is don't, don't, don't pride yourself that you are physical descendants of Abraham. See these rocks right here? God can make one of them a descendant of Abraham. It's easy. It, it's so easy for us to understand that, and yet, and yet I think in this moment, like Peter, it's so easy for us when we're recipients of God's rich grace to fall into the temptation of believing. Surely at some level, what God is saying when He lavishes His grace on me is that I was a little better than you guys. Right? I mean, surely, right? Surely as, as Peter's standing there, surrounded by these Gentiles, in his mind he's going, you know what, I'm realizing at a greater level that, that the grace that God has lavished upon me as a Jew, the fact that, the, that Jesus, the Messiah, came to us, that salvation is from the Jews, oh Lord, forgive me, it's not a sign that we were better, but that you are gracious and good. God doesn't show partiality. Now, I wish I could tell you this morning that I have no clue why Peter would ever think that way. But the reality is my own heart turns that way. I know God is impartial. I know that I am not saved because he looked down on the earth and thought, wow, that's an incredible bald guy. I think I'll save him. He's just a bundle of potentiality. Despite what my grandmother told me. That is not why I'm here. That is not why I'm believing this morning and not why you are. It's only because of God's grace. Of His love pursuing you. And it's so easy for us to, to know, yeah, God's impartial. I'm not here because of anything I've done, but, but you, you know that moment when you walk out and I don't know, you're in a very sanctifying place like Walmart. And you're looking around at others and you're thinking to yourself, surely when God was looking down at these people I'm standing in line with, he just said, that one's a cut above. I'll save them. Here's the beauty. The beauty is that our God is so immense, so limitless, that for all that He has revealed to us, and yes, we want to study what He has revealed in His Word and what He, what he reveals to us in creation, but as we study that, one thing that we find over and over and over again is that we can never come to the limits of God's greatness, to His wonder, to His majesty, to His splendor. His greatness far surpasses our understanding whether it comes to deep things like God's sovereignty and, and our choices, or whether it even comes to the simple things that you and I know and we would affirm this morning, but the rest of our lives we will spend understanding them on deeper and deeper and deeper levels, just like Peter right now, who had gone to seminary, Jesus seminary, for three years. And yet here he is saying, I knew this, but now I'm knowing this in an even deeper way. 
All right, I promise we won't spend that long with every two verses. What does Peter say? How does this, this lack of partiality on God's part show up? Verse 25, he says that every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What Peter's responding to is a group of Gentiles that are right there around him. They have received revelation about the one true God of Israel, and they've responded positively to that revelation. Instead of rejecting it, walking away from it, they've responded to it. And as they've responded to it, God has not rejected them, but accepted them. That word could also be translated, He welcomes them. I imagine it this way in my mind, as Cornelius became aware of the God of Israel, begins giving alms and praying, there wasn't a moment where Cornelius is praying and God's up in heaven and he's getting ready to answer one of Cornelius' prayers and he's like, whoa, wait, you're a Gentile, get away. No, as Cornelius responds to what he knows about God, God doesn't turn away, God welcomes and draws in. And this is what Peter is understanding, that God welcomes in and how does Peter understand that God is welcoming in? Because he's brought Peter to that moment to declare a word. And that's what he says in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, yes, to Israel first, what is this word? This is the apostolic word. This is the, the message of the good news concerning Jesus. That's the word. Preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That is Peter's main point. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everything else that Peter says hinges on that one statement. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Peter knew that and he's coming to a greater understanding of that because as Peter stands in Caesarea in the house filled with a bunch of Gentiles, he's recognizing that now, even over these Gentiles in this moment, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not just Lord over Israel. He's not just Lord over the Jews. He is Lord over all. Over all. He backs that up. How is it that he can make this bold declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord over all? Well, verse 37, he, he goes into this, he develops this. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Apparently, Peter th thinks they know something about Jesus. Now, this may have been just because word about Jesus had spread. It may also be because we know that Philip ended up in Caesarea. Remember Philip? Philip who took the gospel to Samaria. Philip who the, the Lord used to, to bear witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. Luke leaves Philip in Caesarea. And so it may be through um, Philip's testimony and witness there that these Gentiles have, have heard about Christ. We don't know, but Peter is, seems to believe that they know something about Jesus, about what he began to do. And he makes a clear distinction saying that, that, that there's a distinction between the baptism of John and Jesus. The baptism of John was what was at one point and then Jesus, this is, this is, this is something new. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So he's Holy Spirit anointed. He has power, and now the question is, what does he do with that power? 
he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He went about doing good. So here's this Jesus. He's come. He's, he's been born. He's, he's, he's grown up. And now he is endowed with power. What does he do with it? Well, the first thing that Peter says is he does good. The, the idea is uh, that of a benefactor. Someone who has who has privilege, who has power, who has authority, and does not use it to, to manipulate others or to oppress others or to gain for themselves, but instead they use their privilege, their power, their authority to serve others. This is how Peter sums up Jesus, the way he lived, what he did. This is how Jesus talked. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. So he's doing good, but also... Peter says he's healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now this is, this is interesting and it goes back to Peter's main point that Jesus is Lord of all. Because the way Peter's describing Jesus' healing ministry is that this healing ministry was a direct assault against the prince of the power of this world. That as Jesus came in, He was able, unlike others who had come before, just other prophets or those things, Jesus had the power and authority not just to do some miracles, but Jesus had the power and authority to push back the very curse of sin and the dominion of darkness. Jesus was able to, as it were, turn back the curse of sin as people came to Him who were born crippled. As people came to Him who were blind. As people came to Him whose bodies were ravaged with leprosy. He was able to, at the power and authority given to Him, turn that back. He was able when confronted with demon-possessed people to command with a word that the demons be gone, no matter if they were one or many. And all those demons could do is simply plead that this Jesus, who is Lord over all, would not, in that moment, cast them into the pits of hell for all of eternity. He does good. He heals all who are oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, verse 39, and we are witnesses to all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So this stuff happened all around Judea, but he's, he's focusing in on Jerusalem. Why? Because it was there that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now remember, Peter is there with Cornelius, who is a Roman citizen. And it might be that there are many Roman citizens who are there. And they may be standing there, sitting there, whatever they're doing, and they're going, wait a second, you're telling me that this guy who is Lord over all, greater even than Caesar, who has all of this power and authority, that he's able to come and he's able to heal and he's able to push back Satan himself. But this guy, this guy was hung on a tree. I have enough rights that I'm not allowed to be crucified. Romans, Romans citizens could not be crucified. And this guy, he's crucified? He, he hangs on a tree? Wait a second, you mean to tell me that his own people participated in his crucifixion and that ultimately he was condemned by Rome? And you want me to believe that this Jesus is greater? He did die by hanging on a tree. 
But, verse 40 begins, but God raised him on the third day. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. What is Peter saying? Yes, he died. And if that was all that happened, then I wouldn't be here telling you that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because clearly that would mean there is power greater than Him. There is authority greater than Him. That maybe the Jewish religious leaders were greater than Him. Or that Rome was greater than Him. But here's the thing. He died so that He could declare in His resurrection that even death was not greater than Him. That sin was not greater than Him. And we saw it with our own eyes. It wasn't just some spiritual thing. We didn't dream it up. We sat with Him and we ate and we drank with Him. We know that He was bodily resurrected. He appeared to us and we saw Him. He was raised on the third day. And we're witnesses to that. Verse 44, And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. I don't know, but Cornelius' question in his mind might be, well, if Jesus is raised from the dead, why in the world am I sending for you, Peter, and not Jesus? Why is He not here? Because Peter is telling him, listen, we are His witnesses because He has ascended to the Father. He has ascended to the Father where right now He is ruling and reigning. Have you, do you notice as we read through what Peter says here that all along the way, Peter is insistent on the fact that all of these things happen by God because God anointed Him, because God was with Him, because God raised Him, because God chose them as witnesses. Peter is highlighting the fact that Jesus is testified to as Lord by His earthly ministry, but also to uh, testified to by God the Father. Jesus didn't come just testifying to Himself, but God the Father testified to the fact that He is Lord over all. And the ultimate testimony of that is not only that He was raised from the dead, but then that He, was, uh, he ascended back up into heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom shows up. Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand because the King has shown up. The Son of David has arrived. He is present. He is establishing. He's inaugurating His kingdom. Not the fullness of it, but He is establishing it. It traces all through Luke's Gospel, and then you get to Acts, and you almost hear nothing about the kingdom. And you might think that it's faded or that it's gone, but Luke is very intentional because right at the beginning of Acts, he says that while Jesus appeared to his disciples, he taught them about the kingdom. It's what leads them to ask Jesus, hey, is now the time? So there's the beginning of the book of Acts. Then at the end of the book of Acts, guess what we have Paul doing at the end of the book of Acts when he's still under house arrest and people are coming to them? Luke very intentionally says that as people come to Paul, guess what he's teaching them about? The kingdom. He's teaching them about the kingdom. So here, right? 
bookends of, of Acts is the reality of the kingdom. And what is it that these apostles have been sent out to declare? They have been sent out to declare the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Testified to by God the Father who anointed Him with power. Testified to by the Holy Spirit who anointed His ministry. Testified to in His death, burial, and resurrection. Testified to even now that He's ascended into heaven. And even though He was not physically present, Jesus Christ was still ruling and reigning and His dominion was limitless. Absolutely limitless. There was not a person on the planet, not a country, not a nation that was outside of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. In fact, His rule and His authority is so great that the verse that we just read, the end of verse 43, we sang it this morning. That He has been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. This Jesus who came as the Son of David to establish His kingdom, died, buried, and risen, ascended now, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. He is coming back. And He is coming back and He is going to judge. And if you think, Cornelius, that the judgment of Rome is great, if you think when Rome storms into a city with all of its soldiers that that's power, you've seen nothing. Because Jesus is going to return. And He is so powerful and so great that not just the living will stand before Him, but even the dead. Because He is ruler. He is king over all. Now, I don't know. At this point, Cornelius might be like, um, wait, wait a second. You said something about this being good news? And uh, thus far, this sounds incredibly scary. I mean, what happens that we could sing this morning? That Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, someone with all of this power and all of this authority. One who is absolutely holy and perfect. One who has, shows no partiality that everyone living and dead will be judged by Him. How in the world could that be good news? Would that not be terrifying? Should that not be terrifying for us? Ah, oh, but how did Peter start? What did he say at the beginning? That through Jesus Christ there's peace. There's shalom with God to be had because of what He accomplished. What does he say in verse 43? To him, all of the prophets bear witness. Cornelius, listen to me, man. I'm not making up something new. All of the Old Testament bears witness to this Jesus. All of it is looking forward to him. It's all testifying to him and testifying to this reality that everyone, no matter their nationality, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their economic status, no matter their gender, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Everyone. Everyone. Why? How could that be offered? One of the reasons is because Jesus Christ is Lord over all. 
If you broke the laws here in this country, did something horrible, not that any of you ever would. This is all imaginary. You went on a robbery spree of some sort, and you were condemned by our government, our judicial system. You might have a great friend that lives in another country that's very powerful and rich and influential, if they show up here and try to pronounce you forgiven and your sentence done away with, how much good is that going to do you? No good whatsoever. Why? Because they have no power and no authority here. They have no ability to pronounce you forgiven or your sentence uh, removed or to set you free from jail. If they persist, they might join you in jail. This is why it matters, church, that Jesus Christ is not just Lord of Israel. He's not just Lord of those of us who believe. He is Lord of all. There is not a country in this world. There is not a person in this world over whom right now, in this moment, alive or dead, Jesus Christ is not Lord. And it is because He is Lord that we can go and declare that in Jesus' name, through what He accomplished, you can have forgiveness of sins and peace with God because Jesus is Lord and He has the power and authority to pronounce you forgiven by faith in Him. Yes, is Jesus Christ, is He our sweet friend? Amen to that He is. Praise God. Praise God. I mean, there have been times even this week where I think about some of the things that I'm walking through and I just think, oh Jesus, I'm so thankful you understand. I mean, some mornings it's just that I'm tired and I'm trying to pray and my mind's going all over the place and then I'm waking up and I'm like, well, that wasn't a very good prayer. And then I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that you understand what it's like to be human, that you're near me. But listen, as we, as we are thankful for Jesus' ability to understand us and for His friendship, may we never forget that that same Jesus is Lord of all. And this, folks, this is not an interpretation. This is not true because you decide that it's true. This is not an opinion poll that Peter is sending out to see whether people want Jesus to be Lord. He is declaring... Jesus Christ is Lord. God the Father testified to it. God the Holy Spirit testified to it. Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection testified to it. It does not matter what you think. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. Nothing can change that. No power can threaten that. No authority can outdo that. And there is no limit to His kingdom. No limit to His reign. He is Lord. He is Lord. And so Peter can stand before these Gentiles and declare Jesus is Lord. And it can be good news because that same Jesus who is Lord of all emptied Himself and became a bondservant, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that there might be forgiveness in His name. Remember, church, that Jesus is Lord of all. He is King. He reigns. And the fullness of His kingdom is coming. Nothing is going to stop that. No government, no virus, no conspiracy, nothing. God has been and always will be in full control of all of time and history. 
And He is going to establish the kingdom. It is going to happen. The fullness is coming. Jesus Christ is Lord. No matter where you go this week, you will not find a place where Jesus is not Lord. No matter who you talk to this week, you will not talk to a single person, no matter how much they might kick against it, over whom Jesus Christ is not Lord. He is Lord over all. Over all. Well, maybe Peter got as fired up as I did. I don't know. That apparently was not the end of Peter's sermon. But the Holy Spirit was like, Peter, that's the end of your sermon. He pronounces the fact that there's forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things. I've been interrupted by a lot of things preaching, particularly in Senegal. I mean, you know, animals coming in and out, weird stuff happening. You can get interrupted by a lot. This is a great interruption. Here again, Luke's describing this from God's perspective. And what does he say? The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. The Holy Spirit falls on them. Now we know if the Holy Spirit is falling on them, it is because they have heard this Word and they have believed. And we know if they've believed, it's only because the Holy Spirit has given them the ability to understand and faith to place in the Word that they've just heard. Many commentators and students of Scripture have described this as the Pentecost of the Gentiles. And indeed, Luke very intentionally is describing it this way. Remember back in Acts chapter 2? We had a group of people who had responded to the revelation that God had given them up to that point, huddled together waiting. Waiting, praying, waiting. And what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on them. Right? He falls on them. And they speak in tongues and they rejoice. Right? Now, we've got a, we've got a couple of Jews in a room full of Gentiles. And they've responded to the revelation that God has given them and they're waiting. They're waiting to hear a word from the Lord. They're waiting and they hear the word and they believe. And what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on them. Described in much the same way. It didn't just fall on the old people or the young people or the men or the women. It falls on all of them who heard the Word and believed. And just like in Acts chapter 2, there were people who were amazed. They were perplexed. They were confused. Guess what happens? Verse 45, And the believers from among the circumcised. Luke wants to just throw that in there. Remind us, this is one of the issues. These are uncircumcised Gentiles that we're talking about here. And and these are believers from among the Jews who are circumcised. What are they? They are amazed. They are absolutely amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, how do they know this is happening? Well, I'm sure there's probably more that's going on, but Luke here says that Two things are happening like happened before in verse 46. They're hearing them speak in tongues and they're extolling God. This is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. And and we we would be amazed if we were there like these Jews from Joppa, we would be amazed. 
because it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, you don't have to flip that far back in your Bible to the point where God's presence was only represented in the temple. And it was unapproachable. You couldn't get in. Peter couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. None of these other Jews from Joppa could get into the Holy of Holies. It was an unapproachable place. You had to be, it had to be mediated. Right? There had to be a high priest who would go in there on your behalf. And for these Gentiles, well, the best they could hope for was to get to the very outskirts of the temple in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Even if they were circumcised. Even if they decided to abide by all of the dietary laws and all of those things and gave up bacon. A huge sacrifice to make. They gave all of that up. The best they could do is get into that court of the Gentiles where multiple times Jesus turned over tables and said, this is my Father's house. It's to be a house of prayer. That's the best that could happen. And now what's happened? What's happened? The very presence of God has come to these Gentiles in Peter and these other believing Jews. Why? Because at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, is no longer in a temple somewhere. It's indwelling His people. And so now, instead of calling these Gentiles to get to Jerusalem to try and worship God, God goes with Peter and with these Jewish believers to these Gentiles to declare to them Jesus is Lord of all and there's peace to be found through forgiveness in His name. And when they believe, when they believe, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Just like He did on the Jews. Again, I would love to have seen Peter's face. I'd love to see the astonishment. This is what God is doing in this new covenant that's established in Jesus' blood. This is what He is doing. Now through Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are being brought together. Not to ignore the covenant promises made to Israel, but now in this, this moment of redemptive history, Jew and Gentile are going to fellowship together. In fact, that's where it, it, it ends off. Right? They, 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 Peter says that the Holy Spirit has been given, so now he's like, well, what, would we withhold water for baptism? What, would we do that? The, the question in the Greek is to supply a no answer. I mean, if they've received the Holy Spirit, if God has declared them to be His Children saved by faith in Jesus Christ, would we then withhold baptism from them? Of course not. Can you imagine this scene? The way it seems to play out is that Peter gets these six men who've come with him from Joppa to baptize these Gentiles. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine them baptizing men, women, young and old? testifying in this outward symbol of baptism to the inward reality that they had been crucified with Christ and now indwelt with the Holy Spirit had been raised to walk in newness of life. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And then verse 48 says, and he, so after commanding them to be baptized, then he says they asked him to remain for some days. It was already a stretch in the beginning for Peter to go to a Gentile's house. Now he showed up, and it wasn't just one Gentile and his family. It was like all of his relatives and his friends, and they packed this place out. 
Woo, okay. Be enough to have one meal with them. Right? You're, this is pushing the limits. But now he's asked to stay. To remain. I think here there's probably a beautiful image happening here in this moment of what we saw back at the end of Acts chapter 2. Do you remember those passages in Acts chapter 2? Verse 42 where it talked about the fellowship that they shared. So united they were that they ate together, prayed together, broke bread together, and committed themselves to the apostles' teaching together. And they shared this deep, rich unity together. And in that moment, it might have been a little easier because they could have all just been Jews, or at least if there were Gentiles among them, they were proselytites. But here now, that same deep, rich fellowship is being shared as Peter remains with them. How? How is that possible? Because Peter dreamt it up? Because Cornelius imagined it? Because they did a lot of like group team building activities, you know, the trust fall and all that? No. No. Because the reality is they were one in Jesus Christ. They shared the same Holy Spirit. They were part of the same body. And now they would not just eat meals at each other's house, but they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. They would pray together. They would worship together. Can you imagine that moment as these Jews are there listening to these Gentiles pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ? It had to just be incredible. Absolutely incredible. Church, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And His plan is unstoppable. And I know that right now we walk through difficult things as a church. And I know even as we look at the world around us, we see many, many difficult things to understand. And I would be a fool to stand up here and tell you I could explain them all. Here's what I know. Here's what I know because Jesus Christ rules and reigns that your future, if you are in Christ, is sure. That death will not be the end. Sickness will not be the end. Poverty will not be the end. Corruption will not be the end. Oppression will not be the end. The end will be the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and authority to fully establish His kingdom. And rather than running in terror, because of His gracious pursuit of us, we will rejoice and welcome Him. We will delight to see that day. And in the meantime, we have this responsibility to go to everyone and to declare to them, there is one Lord over all. And He's coming again. And He offers to you peace in His name, through belief in His name. It's nowhere else. It's nowhere else. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the fact that You are so much greater than our ability to comprehend. And yet, in Your wisdom and in Your love for us, You communicate to us through Your special revelation of Your Word in Jesus Christ, in creation, You declare to us 
truth about who you are. Oh, Lord, I pray this week that as we, as we study your word, as we, as we walk in creation, as we marvel at your revelation to us, that we would seek to take it all in and, and yet at the same time we would be overwhelmed by your immensity knowing that the Lion of Judah cannot be tamed. He will not fit in our cages. He is greater than our greatest thoughts, deeper than our deepest understanding, far beyond our wildest imagination. You are greater and more glorious still. Remind us as we leave this place that we don't huddle together so that over this little plot of land we can declare You Lord. No, we gather together because You are Lord. As we leave this place, You will be Lord. And everywhere we go, You will be Lord. And oh, Father, grant us the boldness and the compassion, the wisdom and the clarity in our everyday lives to declare to those you bring across our paths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who would be better? When we're thinking clearly and seeing, well, as clearly as we can, Father, who else would we want to be Lord? Have we not tried to lord over our own lives and made a muck of it? Have we not put our hope in, in human kings and, and, and presidents and governments and do they not always fail us? Even this week, Lord, I pray that we as Your children would not lean away from Your Lordship, but delight to lean into it. And delight to call others to it. And Father, we ask for the glory of Your Son that we would see Your Holy Spirit fall on those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That we would be able to witness it and we would stand there like these, our Jewish brothers in that moment, amazed that You are still a saving God. And Father, I pray that we would not lose hope. Though the storm rages, though the waves overwhelm us, though we are so limited in our understanding that we can't even figure out why we do the things that we do. Help us not to limit You. Help us to know, to believe, to be reassured in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And though not here present, He is ruling and reigning. And He is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. We will see the fullness of His kingdom. Death will not be our end. Sickness and poverty and oppression will not be our end. We have a glorious end because we have an inheritance sealed for us by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Revive our hope in that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.